Welcome to None Dare Call It Ordinary, the podcast that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs under the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the demonic Brent. <laughs> oh, no! Casty Sorry. out, Satan! Oh, Casty out! Uh, I kind of blew out the uh, speakers there. Sorry about that, guys. Oh, great. That's the demon of distortion, um, I think, is responsible uh, for that. And so I'm glad we exercised yeah, that demon, and so we won't have to deal with that anymore. Thank you so much. So uh, glad to finally be back. Yeah. This is the first time in None Dare Call It Ordinary History where we have to re-record an episode. Yeah, we recorded this. And my audio was totally trashed for some <laughs> reason. And so we <laughs> we get to do it all over again. So a few announcements besides that. First, we have a new patron, John S. We thank you so much for helping us keep this podcast going. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon and getting access to bonus episodes, just head on over to patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary. We will be having, as we did in all the way back, it feels like a century ago, all the way back in 2018, we did a gnashing of teeth election special, and we're going to be doing that again this year. So it will be on YouTube and it will be, it'll start 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, November 3rd. And it will at first just be me and Brent will be joining uh, later on in the evening. Uh, and it'll basically just be kind of following the returns, kind of seeing what news is popping up. The goal is to just, you know, experience it together uh, because I know that's not the kind of thing. Either way, we don't want to experience it alone. So if you want to be around loved ones and around like-minded folks, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the election, even if you're not an American, you can join the live stream. Unfortunately, you cannot vote um, in that election. So I hope to see you all there. If you need any more information, just head on over to our Discord, which you can access if you go to nondarecalledordinary.com. All right. So Dylan, what is it we're talking about today then? Well, today we are continuing our series on anti- Sedevacantism. This is anti Sedevacantism yeah. part two, where we're covering the book True or False Pope Refuting Sedevacantism and Other Modern Errors by John Salza and Robert Sisko. And before this episode, we did want to mention that one of the real deal Sedevacantists, Father yeah. Chikata, has passed away. I believe now that was about a month ago. I believe that was September 11th. Yeah. Actually, of all days, he passed away. He had been dealing with uh, a form of cancer, I believe, for several years now, mm -hmm. and he seemed to be in good spirits about it and feisty till the end. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want to give him a shout out. He was always entertaining to cover. Yes, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about him today as well. So, Father Chikata, wherever you are, hope you're having a good time. Yeah, definitely. So in today's episode, we're going to be focusing on heresy. And one of the main set of a contest arguments that we discussed in the last anti set of a contism episode was this notion of heresy and the idea that because the so-called popes are heretics, mm -hmm. they can't be the real pope. And because of this, we need to start with a crash course on just what heresy is. As always, we've got a matter form distinction for mm -hmm. you because, you know, that's just the way uh, anything in the Catholic world goes. The matter 
of heresy is the belief. So, for example, if you believe that Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead after his crucifixion, that's a heretical belief. It's a belief that goes against the teachings of the church. The form of heresy is the pertinacity of the will, which is a great word, by the way. Mm -hmm. And this is the unwillingness to let your heretical belief go, because it's one thing to have a false belief or a belief that goes against teachings, but you don't get full blown heresy until you're kind of a pain in the ass about it and <laughs> refuse to give up that belief. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm, I could be mistaken, but I, I think the first law of this is the first law of Catholicism, which is the total amount of matter of heresy in the universe remains constant, merely changing from one form of heresy to another. I yeah, think it's, I think I think I remember learning that in the university. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that's exactly 100 percent correct. The second law of Catholicism is that heresy is, is really bad. You know, hard to believe, but they don't like that. Quote, now, since faith is the foundation of the supernatural life, when the faith is lost, so too are the theological virtues of hope and charity, which, along with faith, constitute the internal bonds that unite a man to the church. Therefore, when one loses the faith, he is completely severed from the soul of the church. So. So hope and charity are only possible with Catholic faith in? I mean, that sounds reasonable. Uh, yeah, no one else okay. has ever hoped. Uh, <laughs> if there's one thing I know, it's it's that. Hope, uh, yeah, hope is nowhere. But, you know, so heresy is bad, but, and this is one of the biggest buts mm. of all time, and it's one of the major themes of this whole section of the book. While heresy severs you from the soul of the church, that's those internal bonds, it does not sever you from the body of the church, which is the visible society we talked about so much in the last episode. Since being severed from the body is what is required to lose one's office, the papacy, for example, being the Pope, private heresy alone can't do it. It would be possible, therefore, for a bishop or even the Pope himself to be a private heretic and yet still remain the Pope. Now, let's get into this a little bit. What's all this business about private Heresy. Well, we need another fancy distinction here, this time between occult heresy and notorious heresy. We've been talking about occult or secret heresy, heresy in your heart. This is just believing a heretical proposition. It's occult heresy, which severs you from the soul of the church, but does not cause you to lose your office. So you're kind of you're a heretic in your mind, Okay. in your mind. You know, you don't believe all the stuff, uh, but it's not public. It's notorious or public heresy that causes you to be severed also from the body mm -hmm. of the church. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later about how exactly that works. In short, this is the distinction between the sin of heresy and the crime of heresy. It's kind of like the difference between actually committing a crime and being convicted of it. Mm, okay. What lands you in jail isn't the murder. It's being convicted of murder. Okay, gotcha. And so we're kind of building, we got these two sets of distinctions. So we, in short, it's the sin versus the crime, the occult versus the notorious, the private versus the public. These are basically, these are all on like the same sides of the ledger, so to speak. And from now on, I'm just going to talk about sin and crime of heresy. And it's good that the sin of heresy isn't enough to turn one into an antipope. Because at first you might think, well, isn't that weird that we could have a pope who is legitimately the pope and yet is a heretic inside his heart? You know, that seems mm -hmm. kind of bizarre. But if that wasn't the case, it would mean that we would have no way of knowing 
if someone was actually the Pope or an anti-Pope, since we can't see into the hearts of other men. It could even be possible, for example, that Pope Michael himself is an anti-Pope mm-hmm. in secret, and we would never be able to know True. if the standard was just committing the sin of heresy. So thankfully, that's not the case. We could ask his mom. Maybe his mom would know, but we don't want, we you know, still can't see into the heart. Got yeah, I definitely, I think uh, Pope Michael's mom definitely can see into his heart. So that yeah. would be the exception. We would have to ask her. And this would have disastrous consequences for the faithful. Quote, those who profess to be Catholic yet rejected defined doctrines could simply cast doubts upon the Pope who defined them in order to cast doubts upon the doctrines themselves. So a Pope says something, you don't like it. You just say, oh, well, then they're an anti-Pope, so I don't have to do it. So it's kind of it would be a a weird loophole or get out of uh, the faith free card. Uh, And we don't want that. We want people following the rules. Salza and Cisco identify confusing the sin and crime of heresy as the major error of Sedevacantism. Quote, the error of the Sedevacantist in this respect is thus twofold. First, the sin of heresy is a matter of the internal forum of which God alone is the judge. Second, the sin of heresy alone does not cause the loss of office. Yeah. And if you miss this point, don't worry. It comes up, I think, a thousand times later in the following chapter. So, yeah, they we'll uh, they make sure to repeat this a lot. <laughs> uh, and we I'm going to say this. This is my main criticism of the book so far. It could probably be at very conservatively. It should be half as long as it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to say that right up front. No need for 700 pages. And the man, you know, we talked about that we honored at the very beginning of this episode, the meatball Mariologist, mm-hmm. Father Chicada himself, makes this very mistake when he says this, quote, It is by violating the divine law through the sin, Bacadum, of heresy, that a heretical pope loses his authority. So it looks like Chicada is making this mistake. But one thing that's useful to clear up right now is that Father Chicada denies this in his rebuttal video, Dead on Arrival. He insists that he only thinks public heresy makes the Pope lose his authority. Chicada is defining public heresy as something kind of in between the sin and the crime. It's more than the sin because the public heretic is speaking out loud about his heretical beliefs. Mm. So it's, it's public in that sense. But it isn't a crime because the church hasn't officially condemned it. So it's, you know, so we talked about committing a murder and being uh, charged. So this is kind of like for him, the public heresy is like in limbo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It is a lot like limbo. So it's being arrested. (laughs) So basically there's there's committing it and being uh, being convicted. And then so Chicago's like, no, all you have to do is be arrested for it. So it's public. but You haven't been yet convicted. And we'll get more into that when we cover the next chapter. But already the authors shut that argument down, saying, quote, the person must be a public and notorious heretic by the church's judgment, Mm -hmm. not simply by the private judgment of individual priests or Catholics in the pew. So Chikata might be right in that there is something like the public sin of heresy, but wrong if these authors are right, of course. This is irrelevant since the public sin does not separate you from the church either. You got to be convicted by the church of heresy to lose your office. Yeah, your sin needs more notoriety, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's got to be real notorious. Of course, all of this so far assumes that only the crime of heresy separates you from the body of the church. Salza and Cisco cite a lot of impressive sources in church history 
including Cardinal Bellarmine, a saint and doctor of the church. So that's pretty impressive. But maybe, just maybe, all the people who say that the sin of heresy on its own doesn't sever you from the body of the church are themselves heretics. Mm. Maybe that's the case. This is exactly what one Richard Ibrani argues, quote, Beware of notorious heretics such as Robert Bellarmine, who deny the basic dogma that an occult formal heretic is not a member of the Catholic Church and not Catholic. They hold the formal heresy introduced by the scholastics that an occult formal heretic is a member of the Catholic Church and Catholic. Hence, they believe that an occult formal heretic can hold an office because they heretically believe he is a member of the Catholic Church and Catholic. And he's Mm got to say the Catholic Church and Catholic is one paragraph. He says that three times. (laughs) Impressive. And speaking of repetition, the author, Saul Zancisco, they quote this passage and then they say, does that mean, you know, he says the scholastics introduce this heresy. Does that mean that all the theologians and canon lawyers from 1250 onward were heretics? And then they quote Ibrani saying, quote, all of the theologians and canon lawyers from 1250 onward were apostates. Many theologians and canon lawyers before 1250 were also apostates, but each case must be studied individually. (laughs) Boom. There's our next thousand part series. Let's do it. Yeah, that's it's going to be every single one. one. We're going (laughs) to we're going to investigate each single one. Make sure nothing is uh, escaping here. So enough about the sin, about the private stuff. Let's get into the crime. Let's talk a little bit more about the crime of heresy we've been yapping. Yeah, this is a true crime podcast after all. Yeah, it is true crime now. (laughs) True crime of heresy. What we definitely need to do is separate it from the suspicion of heresy. Another set of a contest error is to declare someone a heretic based on evidence only suitable for declaring someone suspect of heresy. Because it turns out the Vatican is kind of chill about heresy. Quote, a Catholic can propagate heretical doctrines participate in false worship with non-Catholics, baptize, raise, and educate their children in non-Catholic sects, commit sacrilege against the Blessed Sacrament, take part in satanic black magic, and formally join anti-Catholic sects and secret societies and only be suspected of heresy. (laughs) Even though these activities are objective moral sins against the faith, under the church's law, they are only grounds for suspicion that one is a heretic. God, so wow, you aren't even you aren't even sure if you're a heretic, even if you sacrifice babies to Satan. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yep. I'm loving the super skepticism going on here. So extreme. Yeah, these are the folks Damn. in all the way back in our series on the Book of Revelation. These are the folks who oh, you yeah. know the the, the moon <laughs> has turned into blood right. and the the rivers are turned into blood, and they're like, you know what? I'm still not sure about all this. Uh, this is. <laughs> this is those folks. And this is really important when it comes to Chikata's response above, because he would call someone a public heretic and thus severed from the body of the church. But that just ain't so being found guilty in the canon court of public opinion does not a heretic make. That's only suspicion. So how does the church take action against those who are suspected of heresy? Well, it's a long process. First, they are warned they're they're warned about being a heretic or being suspected excuse me then if they keep fucking up they're warned again and aren't allowed to perform any ecclesiastical legal this time it's a ticket yeah exactly got to get a ticket now then they have a very limited amount of time um only six whole months (laughs) to change whatever it is making them suspect of heresy only afterwards is he considered a heretic 
Wow. But even after the six months, penalties have to be imposed by superiors. They mm. don't happen automatically. You know, so at the six months passes, still someone has to file some paperwork to actively make sure that you're declared a heretic. Well, I mean, that's fine. Personally, like I, I really only need about five and a half months to perform all the satanic black magic rituals I need. And then that's, uh, that's all I need. Yeah, it seems like you can consecrate as many satanic communion wafers as you possibly can. Yeah. And so, you know, just do it in five and a half months and you'll be fine. The authors provide three examples of folks who were mega suspicious or sus, as the kids are saying nowadays, <laughs> and yet did not become heretics. The first is Archbishop Darboy, a 19th century French archbishop. The authors provide a nice summary of this case. Quote, in the Darboy case, we have the example of an archbishop who taught heresy in pubic. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a misprint. That's a, uh, that's a, that is a typo in the book, which I, uh, <laughs> which I enjoy. Uh, so the archbishop who taught heresy in pubic, whose heresy was published throughout his country who was warned in writing by the Pope about his heresy and who retracted nothing even after the Pope's letter of warning was leaked to the public. Yet blessed Pius IX, the very Pope who gave us the syllabus of errors, quanta cura, and ratified the First Vatican Council, remained in union with the man. So even this guy, this Archbishop Darboy, definitely mega suspicious still, he was part of the flock. The other two cases that Salza and Cisco describe, they basically have the same structure. Folks who are mega suspicious, but they don't get, you know, excommunicated or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, all there is to note is that the last guy's name is Dr. Michel Dubay, oh. which is just beautiful. Get ready for nonstop heresy explosions. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and now, okay, so that is the uh, suspicion of heresy. So now we need to talk a little bit about the censures involved and Brent I believe you have more to say about that. I do. So heresy it's it's very important as as we've been talking about because quote a pope could only lose his office for heresy and nothing less than heresy. Yeah, that's uh that's it. That's you know, it doesn't fact. matter if he's, you know, uh putting pineapple on pizza, still right, the pope. Which is bad. If he's uh if he, you know, if he goes drunk driving, right. still the pope. Yep. Uh, you know, it's got to be heresy. So according to the authors, set of a contest consider all sorts of things popes have done to be heresy when really they are simply lesser degree errors or in more pointlessly confusing phrasing, quote, lesser category of theological censure. Ooh, so Okay. Very fancy. To understand what beliefs are heretical, we have to understand the two varieties of proclamations from the church. There's the extraordinary magisterium consists of the outcomes of ecumenical councils such as Vatican II and ex cathedra pronouncements by the Pope. So far, there have been only two ex cathedra pronouncements defining the dogma of Immaculate Conception in 1854 and the Assumption of Mary in 1950. And yeah, the Immaculate Conception is actually uh, the Immaculate Conception of Mary mm. by St. Anne, uh, because uh, according to the Roman Catholic Church, Mary was without original sin. And the Assumption of Mary is the dogma that, like Jesus Christ, uh, the Virgin Mary was also kind of sucked up into heaven. Mm -hmm. And it should be noted here that Salsa and Sisko, along with many other traditional Catholics, actually don't think Vatican II belongs to the extra extraordinary magisterium because they uh, didn't define doctrine. It should be noted that is not the mainstream, the mainstream claim as far as I can see. Okay. Um, and so, but I, you know, I don't know. Okay. I'm just going to say that's what the authors say. 
The ordinary magisterium is when the Pope issues papal bulls, encyclicals, and such, whether from the extraordinary or ordinary magisterium. Quote, the clear, direct, and conscious rejection of such a teaching of revealed truth constitutes heresy pure and simple, or heresy in the first degree. Yeah, I'm okay. So, you know, there's like a billion true crime podcasts out there that may give you juicy details about murder in the first degree, but only here, like we mentioned earlier, a non dare called ordinary where you get juicy details about heresy in the first degree. So let's exactly this is we are we are the official heresy in the first degree podcast. We're the only ones delivering (laughs) the juicy details. Such a market for that. But along with heresy, there are also lots of lesser offenses which should not be confused with the heresy proper. Proximate heresy, or, quote, an opinion approaching heresy, is a doctrine, quote, only held by a majority of the church's theologians as being a revealed truth. Mm. Let's, let's just say it's like heresy adjacent, if you yeah. will. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a near heresy. You're a near heretic. Yeah, you're real close. A proposition is, quote, smacking of heresy. When it offers serious grounds for fearing a heresy may be hidden within it. Salza and Cisco claim that, that many of the statements of the conciliar popes fall into this category. So, yeah, we're not done. Um, there's suspect of savoring of heresy, mm. which uh, Father yeah, Garagou Lagrange explains that this type of heresy is implying, quote, a fear of the poison of heresy being concealed, chocolate coated, so to speak. In a proposition open to ambiguity. So it, it actually sounds more, more like we're making some delicious heresy dishes here. Oh, Jesus, oh. I'm getting kind of hungry, actually. The great Catholic bake-off has begun. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I think Pope Michael and his mother, who we mentioned earlier, that team would not have won in that competition mm, yeah. of the great Catholic bake-off. Yeah, you, I mean, you know seen what? The Pope Michael documentary. All the popes, they have strengths and weaknesses, and Pope Michael's weakness is baking. Uh, you know, that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. So there's one more. It's erroneous in theology, quote, a doctrine that does not directly contradict a revealed truth, but involves logical consequences that are at variance with what has been revealed is theologically erroneous. Mm. So, OK, so it's not just censoring I doctrines. Like, uh, by the way, I mean, I kind covered. of it's kind of funny uh, to me, uh, you know, kind of like so if I say no one has ever been resurrected, that mm-hmm. isn't heresy. True. It's just erroneous because the logical consequence is that Lead Jesus Christ yeah. was not resurrected. So the key, the key to being an to the key to being not a heretic is whatever heretical beliefs you have, just figure out what entails those heretical beliefs mm-hmm. and just believe those. Mm, yeah. Okay. That and makes then sense. magically you're not a heretic. So it's not just censoring doctrines approaching chocolate covered heresy. There's also quote dangerous modes of expression. So some of these modes of expression are ambiguous, captious, offensive, novelty of words, and my favorite, evil sounding. Oh, this is straight up evil sounding. (laughs) So this is exactly, quote, when improper words are used to express otherwise acceptable truths. For example, describing Jesus Christ as the grand architect of the universe when such a term is used by Freemasons to describe the God of Freemasonry. Oh, I see that. that. That's a. Yeah, that's a problem. Or, you know, if I said, for example, that God was the uh, Eddie Van Halen RIP of the universe. (laughs) Yeah. Where he was just, you know, the universe into being. (laughs) That might be a little, uh, that might be a dangerous mode of expression. Mm hmm. Okay. So we are, what, a third into the book, maybe? Not even a fourth. This is like about, we're about at chapter eight here, I think. 
Yeah, chapter eight. Chapter eight, can a pope fall into heresy? So this this chapter answers these questions, these two questions here. Can a pope fall into personal heresy internally? And number two, can a pope profess errors and heresy externally? Quote, it is common opinion among the theologians that a pope can fall into personal heresy internally and even public and notorious heresy externally. The church has never taught that a pope is impeccable, unable to sin. Mm. So I, when I read this, I have to admit, you know, as a, like a disgusting ex-Protestant as I am Ugh. here, as I've already admitted, um, I thought that Catholics did consider Pope unable to be sin, which is, I guess, what modernism gets you. Pure lies. Yeah, so pure I was lies. Wrong. Since and childhood, one, since one thing um, in the interests of history, it's really good they don't believe that because uh, gotta say, a few of those popes not not too good, not so good, <laughs> not so good. I'm just gonna put it that way. Be <laughs> diplomatic about it. So our authors point out that Sedevacantus misunderstand Bellarmine's teachings constantly, which leads them to the conclusion, quote, that a heretical pope automatically ceases to be pope without a declaration from the church. Mm. And that last part is key. You got to get that declaration, guys. Yeah, the Catholic Church loves red tape. You got to get it notarized. Sedevacantus John Lane, quote, has gone so far as to publicly declare that that quote from Pope Adrian VI, who taught that a pope can teach heresy, is a fabrication. The quote Ah, itself is incorrect. Man. Yeah, not good. Lane even trashed the good name of Father Dominique Boulet, who used this citation from Pope Adrian VI in an article. He wrote, quote, Poor Father Boulet, he literally grabbed quotes from the net, it seemed, and cobbled them together. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I just, I assume, I'm not sure, but I assume he's talking about that 1995 Sandra Bullock movie, which yeah, we all... I, I think, uh, I mean, I think, I'm, San, I'm if I'm not mistaken, Sandra Bullock is a doctor of the church. The horror show didn't stop there, because when Lane then accused non set of a contest Robert Sisko, one of the authors of this book, and other authors um, who have cited the same quote by Pope Adrian VI as, quote, complete charlatans without the slightest affection for the moral law or truth itself. Wow. Yeah. So Salzo, you know, I have to say Salza and Sisko settle the score and put all this nonsense to rest by citing the entire quote of Pope Adrian VI and get an automatic win, in my opinion. Because why, you may ask? Well, just this one little detail. It's quoted in its original Latin. Yeah, Boom. that's, yeah, you win. You None. win the argument. Salza and Cisco ask, why would Sedevacantus rely so heavily on Bellarmine? Then he answers his own questions with, quote, because this position that a pope cannot fall into heresy makes their case much easier to prove. Since a hereticizing pope could certainly be considered by a reasonable person to have lost interior faith. Following Vatican II, many traditional Catholics believe that multiple popes have lost their faith internally. The authors state that this seems evident, quote, due to their many words and actions which rendered them suspect of heresy and propagators of heresy. You know, I do have to say, I see a common ground a little bit between like maybe traditional Catholics instead of a contest. You know, it's, I think we should pause for a brief moment and enjoy this. But... Uh, no, because on page 203, Salz and Cisco write, quote, Today, for example, we hear that we must accept ecumenism, collegiality, religious liberty, freedom of conscience, the spirit of Vatican II, etc., without even receiving a clear definition of what these terms mean. This is one of the distinguishing characteristics of modernism, which it hoars clarity and thrives in the murky waters of ambiguity and undefined terminology. Oh, because yeah, this is, the, this is the one main thing because Salza and Cisco, they're traditional Catholics. They're into the SSPX, mm-hmm. the Society 
of St. Pius X. They're in the R&R crowd that recognize and resist. Yep. And they have all the same criticisms of Vatican II and, you know, everything that followed after it as the set of a contest. The only difference is that they still think the Pope is the Pope. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So the authors give us some fun examples of Pope's teaching heresy. One is of Pope Honorius, who taught the belief that Christ has only one will. When we all know that Jesus Christ was true God and true man at the same time, thus had both a human will and divine will. Christ had two wills for the price of one, is what I'm going to say. Man, that is a discount. That is a deal. He brings up the case of Pope Erroneous because it, quote, shows that it is possible for a pope by profane treason to overthrow the immaculate faith of the Roman church and yet still retain his office. Yeah. I mean, please, guys, this is a family friendly podcast. Mm, There'll be yeah. no profanity. Let's keep it to good, wholesome, clean treason, please. That's what, that's why our Russian investigation series was rated PG. Yeah, you, exactly. You go back and exactly. So speaking of families, next, Salza and Cisco offer a fun story for the kids. Gather around. Between the 9th and 10th centuries, there were, there were battling camps and Catholicism, each trying to gain control of the papacy. He tells a story of Pope Stephen VI in the year 897. Pope Stephen VI decided to put, quote, his predecessor for the rival camp, Pope Formosus, 891 to 896, on a mock trial for alleged violations of church law. He had Pope Formosus' dead body propped up on a throne and placed on trial. So since he was, quote, found guilty of perjury of having co coveted the papal office and violating the canons of the church, he had the three fingers of Formosus's right hand, those used to give the papal blessing, cut off and his body thrown into the Tiber River. The election of Pope Formosus and all the, the official acts of his pontificate were rendered null and void and his ordinations were declared invalid. Wow. <laughs> this really should be turned into a Disney Pixar film, but I don't know. <laughs> I got to say, this has wow. to be the pettiest thing that has ever happened. I can't <laughs> imagine. Digging up a dead dude. Yeah. Dead dude's corpse. It's like we get it. Putting Jeez. it on trial. Man. So for the next round of popes, they were each issued all sorts of undoing what this pope did and first or what that pope did last. It, it was null and void city, basically. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a mess. And our authors explain how difficult this must have been for the layman Catholics at the time. Quote, one can only imagine the turmoil that the faithful experience when a pope declared their clergy had not been validly ordained. Which meant, of course, that the masses they celebrated, the confirmations they administered, and the absolutions they gave were all invalid. Oof. Oh, jeez. Sorry, sorry. Your whole life has been invalid. Hashtag cancel conciliary popes, I guess. <sighs> so he concludes chapter eight by giving us the two conditions necessary for papal infallibility. One, the pope must be acting in his official capacity as pope. And two, he must be using his supreme authority at its maximum power. Ooh. I mean, yeah, yeah. Oftentimes, popes set their supreme authority to autopilot, which is, you know, it's cruising at only minimum pope power. And it's not enough. Yeah. So. It reminds me of uh, Star Trek when they set their phasers to stun, <laughs> where the popes are most of the time, they're just trying to stun heretics. They're not trying to kill them. All right. So moving on to chapter nine, proving the crime of heresy. Here we go. This is the meat. This chapter will deal with how a pope could lose his office for heresy. According to the authors, the set of contests consistently lower the evidentiary bar, demonstrating that they, quote, not only imagine themselves to be the judge and jury, but lawmaker as well. I would want with executioner, but okay. 
It's fine. Mm -hmm. For they not only determined by private judgment that the burden of proof has been met, but also define what the burden of proof is. And when they are unable to meet the burden of proof that they themselves have established, they simply lower the bar. So one of the authors that wrote this book, Robert Sisko, also wrote an article explaining that the conciliar popes could not possibly have lost their office due to the public crime of heresy. In response, a Sedevacantus blogger by the name of Stephen Spiray, quote, reduced the burden of proof so low that according to him, the Pope doesn't have to be a heretic at all to lose his office for heresy. You read that correctly. After arguing for years that a Pope who becomes a manifest heretic automatically ceases to be Pope, we are now told that a Pope doesn't need to be a heretic at all to lose office, much less an obstinate manifest declared one. (laughs) And everyone is already automatically not a Pope. So Salza and Cisco, they're outraged and they continue, quote, Mr. Spiray now argues that a Pope must simply appear to be a heretic to automatically lose his office. And who, you may be wondering, is the judge that determines if the Pope appears to be a heretic? You guessed it. It's the individual set of Acontas layman in the pew. Who else? Mm, yep. But I think the, the key is to lower the bar so low that you reach hell itself. That is. Yeah, well, in that case, that you would wrong. have to raise. You have to raise the bar. You have to raise the bar to the second <laughs> yeah. heaven because that's where, yes, that's that's where hell true. is. Yep, I still haven't learned that that's not where hell is. God, I, I also just <laughs> you got to appear to be a heretic. That's that's it. I mean, that is like, what what are you in jail for, Dylan? Oh, I appeared to be a murderer. And so I'm thrown in jail. <laughs> they knew for a fact I didn't do it, but I, I certainly looked like it. So now I'm in jail. So then we get into this idea that really any underling can you know warn a Catholic higher up that he may be treading into heresy territory. However, this must be done as an act of charity. You can't do it with a snarky attitude because it just won't count. Yeah, you got to be just like, hey, I just want to let you know. I just, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm concerned for you. So I think you might be a heretic. Um, Yeah, it's got to be like that. In regards to a pope, any cardinal, counselor, Roman clergy or Roman synod can do this. This isn't an act of charity, but of judgment. You can be rude and snarky if you aren't some lame Catholic layman, I guess. Yeah, so. lame, lame men, lame men. And I got to <laughs> say, next time, next time I public re- publicly rebuke somebody, I'm going to say, and this isn't an act of charity, but of judgment. Thank you very much. I don't want you to get confused about my insults. Father Bellarini writes, quote, for the person who admonished once or twice does not repent, but continues pertinacious. In an opinion contrary to a manifest or defined dogma, this person declares himself openly a heretic. I, I have to say, I just, I just like, again, how vague we are here. Seems very modernist to me. Is it once or twice? Yeah, it kind of yeah. seems it seems like an important, you know, to really nail this down. The exact number since we're talking about the sin of heresy here. Yeah, you just got a one and a half times. OK, got it. So Cardinal Cajetan clears all this up saying, quote, a heretic pope after two admonitions must be deposed. As the quote goes on to make what he just said even more confusing, quote, whoever declines for the for the first time from the faith, which he professed by his own will to be true after one correction, a second time and a third one after a second correction is judged to deserve expulsion as incorrigible. I had it and then I lost it there. Yep, I lost it. Yeah, I have no idea. I'm I'm confused. Quote, Sedevacantus maintain that no one can warm the Pope, not even the College of Cardinals, yet individual Catholics with no authority can judge the Pope guilty of heresy and declare him deprived of his office. Sound reasonable? 
And my answer to the authors of this book is no, none of this actually sounds reasonable to me, but what do yeah, I, I feel we've, uh, we've left that realm. Uh, yeah, we've definitely we have committed uh, the sin and I'm going to declare that we have committed the crime of unreasonableness. Nice. Another mistake set of a contest make is that they link the loss of office to the sin of heresy rather than the obvious correct position, the crime of heresy. And thankfully, we haven't talked about that yet uh, that, you know, so this is the first time this is coming up. So you all may be wondering, what does this look like in real time? Like, what does it look like when a pope is depoped? Well, quote, if a pope falls from the pontificate due to heresy, the pope first becomes deposed for the loss of office, while the loss of office itself, disjointing the man from the pontificate, occurs immediately by an act of Christ. In other words, quote, it is possible for Christ to sustain a heretical pope in office because the relationship between heresy and jurisdiction is not one of total metaphysical incompatibility. (sighs) Uh, okay. uh, so then there is the chronology of this I just imagine digest. I imagine Christ being like look you're still kind of doing good stuff like yeah I get it you you have some wacky beliefs you don't believe in like so like okay you don't believe in the immaculate conception but you know you're you're doing good with these crusades you know yeah I'll I'll let it slide I'll let it slide and continuing with the quote quote the pope is first declared a heretic crime He is then ipso facto deposed by Christ. Finally, the former Pope is punished by the church. Example is public excommunication. So then whipped, beaten, crucified, but it's okay because it's all done out of charity guys, not judgment. So yeah, and that's why it's Um, fine. I also, I I like, I like deposed by Christ. Again, I really like that. You know, I imagine Christ comes. It's it's a pretty rare. It's like, all right, guy, you got to get out of here. You got to move out. It's on page 267 that this co-host gets thoroughly triggered. This this one speaking to you now because Salza and Cisco say, quote, with a fallen human nature as it is, such uncertainty would quickly lead to confusion and division, just like we see in Protestantism, uh, where everything is based upon each person's private uh, judgment. Gosh. So, yes, Salza, Cisco, everything, everything. It's true. Everything is based on private judgment and Protestant churches. There's no hierarchy at all, and you can pretty much do whatever you want in in our services. You can even drink alcohol and eat chips. And uh, oh, I'm thinking of your masses. I'm so sorry. Oh God, what have I done? Uh. (laughs) We drink Welch's grapefruit juice and stale crackers. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) like how we have the the Protestants uh, have the um, well. At least I don't know. Maybe that was just the Baptists, but we definitely did not drink wine. We had uh, Welch's grapefruit juice. I don't know why it had to be Welch's, but. I mean, that's that's that what that's what Jesus drank. He drank welches. <laughs> so that's why. So moving on to chapter 10, the church must judge the crime. This chapter is all about, quote, why the church alone possesses the authority to judge the crime of papal heresy. It just does. OK, end of chapter. Just kidding. It's uh, can't be that easy. Now, let's go through these hundred plus pages together. Oh, yeah, it's complicated. Here we go. It's not just only the church that possesses the authority to oversee a deposition of a pope for the crime of heresy. And not only is it a general council within the church, but this general council must issue a declaratory sentence of the crime. Oh, and you know how Sedevacantus loved them some Bellarmine. Well, he explicitly said, quote, a heretical pope can be judged. Mm. Well, according to Bellarmine, this judgment of the pope is permitted because heresy is the one case in which inferiors are permitted to judge superiors. If the heretical Pope had already fallen from office, ipso facto, prior to the church's judgment, which is how Sedevacantus incorrectly interpret Bellarmine, 
the former pope would no longer be superior to the council. I have to say, there's so there's so much heresy talk in this series. We should have shouldn't have wasted that title on the John Calvin series and uh, titled this one under call heresy instead. Yeah, it's better. I uh, I don't know. I don't know. Set of a contest star John Lane really gets under the author's skin. The authors say in the book, "quote Mr. Lane actually mocks the idea that the church herself must render a judgment for a prelate or pope to lose his office." by arguing that any Catholic in the pew can judge facts as facts without requiring daddy to confirm them. (laughs) Daddy, in this case, is the Catholic Church. What Mr. Lane is saying is that he can judge whether a prelate has lost his office for heresy without needing Holy Mother Church or daddy to render a judgment. I I think the author should have went with uh, Holy Mommy Church there, but that's fine. (laughs) Holy Mommy Church. So Father Layman says, uh, that's a great name. Father Layman, that's unfortunate actually for him. Yeah, it's a literally a contradictory Father Layman name. says. <laughs> the man has a contradictory name. <laughs> Father Layman says that even in the case of a notoriously heretical pope, if he's not deposed by the church, he's still super powerful. Quote, while he, the pope, was tolerated by the church and publicly recognized as the universal pastor, he would really enjoy the pontifical power in such a way that all his decrees would have no less force and authority than they would if they were truly faithful. The acts of the public magisteriate are in force as long as he remains in office and is publicly tolerated. He's got to be tolerated, though. Got to be tolerated. It's all about uh, tolerations. uh, The Pope, you know, he's kind of annoying, but we're going to tolerate it, I guess. All right, so summing up here, quote, the set of a contest theory has no basis in Catholic teaching or practice and is further untenable for the following reasons. Then there's five here. We're going to go through each one. One, the determination of the internal sin of heresy, which they think results in the loss of office for a heretical pope, is a judgment of the internal forum. Since not even the church judges internals, neither can the set of a contest. Boom, checkmark, done. Two, Even if the internal sin of heresy were committed, it alone would not sever the Pope from the body of the church or cause him to lose his jurisdiction. Three, the set of contests contradict themselves when they claim canon law does not apply to the Pope and then defend their position by appealing to canon law as they regularly do, which amounts to playing both sides of the fence. Four, canon law interprets and applies to divine law to the accused in accordance with principles of justice. And finally, number five, those who publicly defend the set of a contest position by appealing to either canon law or divine law usurp an authority that does not belong to them, since it belongs to one and the same public authority to write the law, interpret the law, and apply the law to particular cases. Boom. Shut the book. Boom. Shut it. Boom. No, actually, we have to keep on reading. Oh, uh, that's book, not I even. Believe. I think yeah. it's about halfway through. Yeah, we're about halfway through, and I believe uh, next uh, our next episode we're going to be talking a little bit about infallibility. Woo-hoo! But until then, uh, this this concludes uh, part two of our anti set of a contism series, and so that means that we are. Dead. 
for listening to this episode of None Dare Call It Ordinary. If you would also like to hear our weekly bonus episodes, just become a $5 a month patron over at patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary. That is also where you'll find any blog posts, pictures, and news updates to go along with our regular series. And you don't even have to be a patron to get access to all that fun stuff. You can also reach us by email at nondarecallitordinary at gmail.com. Lastly, we ask for you to please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are served.